Welcome to episode number 72 of 100 Plus, an overview of 100 of the most important people, events, and ideas of the last 2,000 years. This is a survey of the forces and factors that have shaped today's world, Western civilization, the Christian faith, and you. This series of lectures is based on the idea that if we back up to the intersection of the Greeks and the Romans with the Jews and the Christians, and then trace the development of this group as it unfolds through the Roman Empire, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment, modernity, and post-modernity, we will not only gain a better understanding of the past, we will also gain greater clarity about the present and a better understanding of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus today. In this lecture, we focus on the third of the four men who rule from the grave. That is, those whose ideas and ideologies not only shape the 20th century, but continue to shape it today. We've already discussed Charles Darwin and Karl Marx. Today, we look at Friedrich Nietzsche. Before World War II, H.G. Wells, the famous science fiction writer, wrote a book entitled A Short History of the World, and in it he expressed the sort of very uh, euphoric uh, optimism of the age. Here's a quote. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, that it will live, that the children of our blood and lives will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but a prelude to the things that man has yet to do. So this is the this is the idea. This is I've talked about this. This is the kind of of optimism and and really sort of uh, euphoria that we find at the end of the 19th century uh, as we are moving into the 20th century. The message of Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher famous for his books such as uh, Beyond Good and Evil and uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, among others. He wrote lots of books, but famous for his books, famous for the statement, God is dead, and uh, famous perhaps also for going insane. Uh, The message of Friedrich Nietzsche to H.G. Wells and to everyone else who was saying this kind of things is, you fool, you have no idea what is coming. The 20th century is not headed towards utopia. It is headed towards blood and chaos. As soon as people wake up and realize uh, that that God is dead, they're going to realize that there are no rules. They're going to stop trying to play nice, and they're going to go after what they want without any concern over the rights of other people. I'm not crazy. Everyone else is. So Nietzsche is a bit of a scapegoat in uh, many Christian circles. Um, when it comes to talking about evil and atheism and nihilism, uh, Nietzsche's name always comes up. Uh, but I think he, he sort of gets a bad rap because, um, well, I do not line up with Nietzsche and what he thinks and what he believed. Obviously, he did not believe that there was a God. He was very much against Christianity. He was more describing what he saw and what was coming than he was necessarily advocating for it. Um, so I think we've got to admit that Nietzsche was very prescient when it came to being able to look ahead and to say, if these are the undergirding assumptions and the values and the worldviews of people, 
then we're not headed towards uh, a big bonfire where we hold hands and sing Kumbaya. We're headed for a big, ugly bloodbath, which of course is what the 20th century turned out to be. Uh, you may remember that in 2017, the Oxford Dictionary selected post-truth as its word of the year. What they claimed was that, uh, they, that we were increasingly living in a world where truth claims and factual data were things that people would dismiss because they were mostly uh, going to be viewed as power grabs. And anyway, they mattered less than what people felt and that uh, what really mattered was sort of emotions and our internal beliefs. So if Nietzsche was alive today, <laughs> if Nietzsche was alive in 2016 or 2017 when the Oxford English Dictionary came out with post-truth as their word of the year, he would have said, well, uh, howdy-doody for you. You're only like 150 years late. I said this stuff way back when, but nobody listened. So... The beginning of the 19th century, Nietzsche was arguing that truth was just a creation by the powerful for their own self-interest. There was no such thing as truth. There was no such thing as good and evil. All that mattered, according to Nietzsche, was power. So as an aside, before we move on, I just should note that H.G. Wells, at the end uh, of World War II, so like nine or ten years after he wrote his first quote, H.G. Uh, Wells conceded that he had been wrong and that Nietzsche had been right. He, he said um, in his, the last thing that he wrote, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which things had seemed well-nigh banished uh, has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. So um, Nietzsche had said as much. H.G. Wells had said it was going to be great. When it turned out not to go the way he thought, he conceded that Nietzsche was right. Well, welcome to episode number 72. After picking up at the end of the book of Acts, we have been meandering through 2,000 years of history. We've been highlighting the big themes, the big players, the big dogs, the big ideas, uh, we've been trying to focus on the people, events, and ideas uh, of consequence. Now, by necessity, we have been moving quickly. 100 lectures is crazy. Uh, if we we're going to do anything, even, even with some semblance of being comprehensive, it would take 1,000 lectures, and I promise you, I'm not sure I got 100 lectures in me. I certainly don't have 1,000. Uh, and even then, with a 1,000, we'd still be ignoring all kinds of stuff. That's the nature of history. You cannot, you cannot give equal time to what has happened. Uh, you've got to pick and choose and try and figure out what are the most significant and important things. So in this view, we're trying to look down, not from outer space, like not from a mile above the Earth. We're trying to look down from 30,000 feet so we can see some of the topography, figure out what uh, the issues were that mattered. And so at the moment, we're looking at the four big players that uh, sort of shaped the 20th century and on into the future. Uh, so we've looked at, um, at Charles Darwin and Karl Marx. Sigmund Freud is uh, the next one, but right now we're focusing on Nietzsche. 
Uh, so they're all different, and Nietzsche, in one sense, they don't, they don't easily fit together in a series. In, in, in another sense, they do. I mean, I think they are the four that, that really predominantly rule from the grave. But um, Darwin wasn't necessarily out to attack Christianity in the way that you see with uh, Nietzsche and Freud and Marx. Um, and Nietzsche's influence is less, again, it's less that he's advocating a theory trying to advance a theory as much as he's trying to explain what is happening. And so it's a little bit different than uh, perhaps than what you see with Marx and Freud in particular, Darwin a little bit. So I'm not exactly sure how to assess Nietzsche's uh, impact. What you will see is that he's brilliant uh, and that he's disturbed and that uh, he doesn't have many friends, but his ideas, while they were not big at the time, uh, sort of a lot of them proved to be helpful in terms of understanding what was going on. And what we find with Nietzsche is not just is he a critic of Christianity. He's a critic of the critics of Christianity. So uh, he is going to say that lots of people, for instance, Marx and, and Freud and Darwin, but lots of other people are going to, um, are going to try and develop theories. They're going to look and, and pull together try and articulate meaning and coherent explanations and design systems and say, this is who humans are and this is how human society works. And, uh, and Nietzsche is going to come along and say, if you do not believe in God, then you have to understand that you're, you've got to get rid of a lot of the other stuff you're holding on to because that is going to go away as well. If you get rid of the foundation of Christianity, you, or if you get rid of Christianity, you cannot keep the foundation of Christianity to build your own, your own view. And so um, he's going he's gonna to be yelling about that. I'm, I am, as always, getting ahead of myself. Uh, so this will unfold. For now, suffice it to say that Nietzsche is the guy who comes out, about, comes out against just about everyone. He is a critic of the critics. Uh, he devotes a significant part of his career to, uh, to calling out his peers who questioned the Bible uh, and, and to say, why, if, if what you say is not true, Christianity, if what you say is not true is not true, why do you think humans have worth? Why do you think humans have dignity? Why do you think there's right and wrong? Why do you think we should care for the poor? Why do you think humility is a good thing? Why do you think kindness is better than being cruel? All of those things have to go away if you're getting rid of God. And again, he would argue that there is no God. So as I can, as I have said, he's, he's not the guy you invited to a party, uh, and he wouldn't come if you did. He was very much a loner. Uh, and he was mad. Again, he, he goes insane uh, and, and has, has physical problems in addition to mental problems. Uh, so he's not a happy guy. Uh, he's an angry guy, but he's a bright guy. So let me back up and start with uh, some of the bio-information. So, Friedrich Nietzsche was born on October 15th, 1844, to a Lutheran pastor and his wife in Germany. His father died when he was fairly young, some sort of accident. He got a concussion uh, and never recovered. Uh, he was raised by his mother and his grandmother and by his two sisters. And one of the things that you hear or you read over and over about uh, Nietzsche is that uh, they doted on him. He was the one guy in the, in the extended family, and they gave him all kinds of attention. So it was assumed 
He's a very bright, uh, precocious kid. It's assumed that he is going to follow in his father's footsteps and become uh, a pastor. But uh, by the age of 18, he had lost interest in God. He was much more interested in uh, alcohol and in cavorting around town. He does eventually find his way to the University of Leipzig, where he studied philology, which is uh, the study of languages and the etymology of languages. So J.R.R. Tolkien was a philology professor. So if you read Lord of the Rings, the reason he's making up languages is because that's his thing. Uh, So anyway, he graduates uh, from the University of Leipzig uh, with a PhD in philology. He is a prodigy, and he is awarded uh, a professorship, and he becomes the youngest professor of philology in Germany at the time. He's 24. At this point, his career seems set. He has a good, stable job, but he was not interested in academia, and he believed that if, uh, that if he gave himself to studying and thinking about philosophy, he would become, uh, you know, like the, the, he would change the world. And so uh, for him, philosophy is not, by the way, a bunch of uh, guys in tweed jackets uh, arguing about debating ideas and all this stuff and, and then doing nothing about it. To him, philosophy was like the collision of ideas that changed the world and he had no interest in just sort of academics for academic sake. He tried to, to cram into his books. He wanted to put more content in one page than most books had in the entire book. And he wanted to write in such a compelling way. Uh, and sometimes he does. I mean, reading Nietzsche is, uh, is, a bit of a head, is a bit of a head trip. But he wanted to write with so much power and passion that you could not not do something about it. Like, if you got his ideas, like you were bound to go take action. So um, it's not dry stuff. Nietzsche, I, I'm not going to recommend that you read a lot of Nietzsche. I'll explain that in a bit. But um, he decides he's not going to be a philology professor, so he starts to study philosophy. He begins to abandon his professorial, professorial duties and to study philosophy. At some point, he becomes friends with uh, the musician Richard Wagner, and uh, they will sort of be uh, two peas in a pod. Uh, Wagner claimed that his music was like the synthesis of all great thinking and art and everything else. And uh, Nietzsche agrees for a while. He thinks that uh, Wagner was a a supreme teacher, philosopher, lawgiver, and prophet. Uh, But then, uh, so they're hanging out for a while, but then Wagner begins to become famous, and, and Nietzsche thinks that Wagner is selling out, and so this will be his biographers. Nietzsche's biographers will say this was a big, significant turning point when their friendship ends, and Nietzsche decides he's not going to be hanging out with people. He's not going to be invited to the parties. He is going to uh, have to do this on his own. So... Uh, he begins to travel around. He will do what, what we, if you know much about Nietzsche, what you sort of think he does, and that is that he travels around looking for places to, to deal with his poor health. And uh, he's in and out of insane asylums. It's generally believed that uh, he goes insane from syphilis, which he contacted from a prostitute in 1870. There's a little bit of pushback on that theory. 
Um, not universally accepted, but it's, it's the prevailing one. So he's got physical issues. He's got mental health issues. He's going to travel around looking for cures and looking for places of peace where he could write. He tends to write in a flurry. It's, it's almost as if he's got a bipolar disorder. He's manic, and then, he's, then he crashes for a month. Um, and so he will spend uh, some time writing these books. He self-publishes all his things because he thinks he can make more money, and he also uh, he just doesn't get along with people, including publishers. So, um, and by the way, his books are not very popular. He does not have a following of any significance during his lifetime. Uh, in, in 1891, he uh, is admitted by, I believe, his sister into an insane asylum, and uh, he is now, at this point, um, going to spend the next 10 years uh, living there, and at some point he'll claim to be Jesus Christ. I mean, he, he will, um, he will uh, have a tragic ending of his life. If Arthur Brooks is right, in his new book, so Brooks is the Harvard Business School professor who, who uh, teaches on leadership and on happiness, and his most recent book is From Strength to Strength, and he says that you know, he read 10,000 studies on happiness, and it's not a mystery what makes us happy. He says, I can tell you what makes you happy. There's four things, faith, family, friends, and meaningful work. So if he's right about that, and I tend to think that he is, I mean, I obviously think we were created by God for God. If we don't have a relationship with God, then that's a gap. Uh, family is the foundation of society, and uh, it's, it's the place of, of where we can relax, where we're loved unconditionally. Friends are also, you know, the people that are with us. Friendship makes life. We were made for community. We were made in the image of a God who has eternally existed in the eternal friendship of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But additionally, it, I think that, that uh, Brooks is right in saying we need meaningful work. If the Bible is our guide, and of course I think the Bible is our guide, then uh, it's clear we don't work to live, we live to work. Like we were given work to do, we are to work. And we need work, we need meaningful work in order to have lives of meaning. So in that sense... Nietzsche doesn't really have those. So, no faith. Uh, his family, he does get cared for. He doesn't marry, but he, he is cared for by his uh, sisters. Uh, he doesn't, doesn't have friends of any significance. And while his work, he believes at times is very meaningful, it's not getting any recognition. He's not getting much money for it. Um, so, he's not, um, he's not a happy camper. He does console himself with the belief that the fact that he has no friends means he has more time to think and to write and to lay down his philosophy. So, uh, by the way, I have to just say, <laughs> I always find it a little odd when people, philosophers in particular, like postmodernists and others, uh, who say there is no meaning, write books saying there is no meaning, and then get mad when people don't read them? Like, like, Foucault wrote a book saying language is meaningless. And I think it's Foucault. He writes a book saying language is meaningless. It has no meaning. Words can mean anything at all. They can mean nothing. And then he's mad when nobody reviews the book. Like, who's going to review the book? I'm reviewing a book that says nothing that I write has any value? Like, so anyway, 
Nietzsche falls a little bit into that camp. I don't think he's quite as clear thinking as he thought he was. But um, anyway, he suffers from a bad mix of brilliance, pride, harsh personality, and mental illness. Uh, he's brilliant, but here, here I'll say it's worth reading a little bit of Nietzsche just because he's, is, he's not a boring, dry, you know, German philosopher that says things that you've got no idea what he's saying. He gets you out of his chair. But uh, as uh, Mansfield, a professor at Harvard, Mansfield uh, recently wrote a book on Western civilization, and he's been at Harvard for like 50 years. He went there as an undergrad and uh, then graduated. I think he did undergrad and PhD there, and then he started teaching there, and he's now in his 80s, and he's been there his entire life. Since, since he got out of high school, he's been at Harvard. Uh, and he uh, has won all kinds, you know, Medal of Freedom or whatever the president gives out and, and all kinds of academic honors. He's, he's a very distinguished uh, writer and thinker. His last book is on Western Civ. Uh, and he calls Nietzsche one of the most indispensable philosophers of our time. But he says he always warns students not to fall in love with him. He said, I always tell my students that Nietzsche is someone whom you will probably like more than you should. He makes a wonderful diagnosis of the crisis of our time, but his solutions are not to be recommended. So um, again, I think that's what I'm saying. I, I think Nietzsche gets a little bit of a bad rap in Christian circles because he, he says God is dead, uh, but he's not, um, he's just sort of describing what he sees happening in culture and how people are living. And then he's saying, this is what is going to follow. So um, I have struggled this week to distill Nietzsche down into a few um, bite-sized things that you can hold on to. I was told last week that I gave uh, short shift to Karl Marx. I did a bad job. I misrepresented Karl Marx. Uh, I was told that I needed to stay in my lane. And I think actually that Marx is easier to understand than Nietzsche. So I'm a little gun-shy here when it comes to uh, trying to summarize uh, Nietzsche, who is by no means um, a lightweight. So I pushed back on the, on the criticism. I love criticism. I love the questions. I love the thoughtful criticism is very helpful. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. Absolutely, I want to hear it. Uh, but I, uh, I, I took umbrage with the idea that I was completely out of my lane saying, look, only a fool is going to take on this project of uh, trying to water ski over the top of uh, a couple thousand years of history. I cannot be an expert on any of these people. So uh, I have tried to distill Nietzsche down, give you a Nietzsche 101. Uh, I actually had it written down as uh, Nietzsche for dummies. And then I thought, no, what I really need to say is Nietzsche by a dummy. But I'm going to go back to Nietzsche 101. I have eight points. So uh, my effort to, this is, if you're taking a uh, you know, freshman philosophy class and your final exam is who was Nietzsche and what did he think, here are your eight points. Uh, one, he's famous for saying there is no God or that God is dead. Uh, by the way, there's a famous, there's a, there's a cartoon that makes the circles um, makes the rounds in certain circles that I hang out with. It says, uh, on a blackboard you see written, God is dead. And underneath it it says Nietzsche. 
And then a student goes up and writes under, under that, goes, Nietzsche is dead, <laughs> God. So, uh, yeah, so that's what he's famous for. If people only know one thing about Nietzsche, it's that he, that he said God is dead. Um, alongside saying God is dead, he also was a fierce critic of Christianity. He thought it was trouble, thought it was untrue and unhelpful. Now, he doesn't just write against Christianity, but he is in the West, he's in Germany, again, in the, in the last part of the 19th century. So he had, he had some negative things to say about, say, Buddhism and other things, but mostly he's critiquing Western civilization and Western civilization has been shaped predominantly uh, in the 19th century by Christianity, by Judeo-Christian ethic, and again, the, the, the Greek and Roman, as we have noted. But um, so he comes out against Christianity, and in his view, Christianity has led us down a path of slavish obedience to our conscience, to pitying the weak and suppressing the instinct for our own self-preservation, and for keeping us from our quest for power. He declares it's time to move on from the belief uh, that God is real. He says, God is dead. We can be free from God. Point number two. Given that God is dead, nothing matters. Um, so there's a bumper sticker uh, that I, I saw. And uh, it quotes Jesus in, in Matthew 19 saying, with God, all things are possible. So it says, uh, with God, all things are possible. And then it says, without God, everything is permissible. So that's Nietzsche. <laughs> so without God, everything is permissible. Point number three, Nietzsche wants people to live into this truth. He argues that we need to grow up and face reality. So, um, Earlier I said one of the issues about Nietzsche is that he uh, is not just a critic of Christianity, but he's a critic of the critics of Christianity. So what he says is, you say there is no God, and that's, uh, that is uh, a, a fine statement. You're right. But then you act as though there is a God. You're not consistent in following this through. So... Um, he wants people to be brutally consistent. One writer writing about Nietzsche says, he does not search for a more effective moral life. He attempts to save life from morality itself. So remember, Nietzsche is viewed as one of the founders of nihilism. And not everybody says he's a founder of nihilism, and he's also sometimes seen as a founder of existentialism. Uh, and, and it gets a little bit messy because he doesn't always claim these things. But uh, the idea that the existentialists had was, if there is no God, then we're free, we've got to create our own meaning. There is no meaning, but we can create our own meaning. Nietzsche sort of criticizes that. Sometimes he actually sort of doesn't criticize it. Uh, but Nietzsche says, if there is no God, there is no meaning. Live as if there is no meaning. The main point here for number three is that Nietzsche wants people to be consistent with the idea that there is no God, so there are no values. And he, he believes that uh, look, kindness is not a good way to live, uh, that there, there's no reason to think that humility is a good idea. You might play humble for a while, sort of like Machiavelli taught. Yeah, it might be in your best interest to act like you're nice and to tell the truth. That might help you later on be able to lie at a more strategic time. But there is no, you know, there's no judgment coming. 
So don't live as if there is a judgment coming. Uh, point number four, what matters is power. The key line here is the will to power. So there's a book out. Nietzsche didn't write the book. Uh, I believe his sister published it after he died, and it was a collection of his essays and things. But he was often talking about the will to power. And so she just sort of collected a bunch of stuff and put that uh, in this book. Um, but Nietzsche would say, the goal of your life is not to be good. <laughs> the goal is to be great. And that is to have power, to be able to get your way. Because in the end, that's all that matters, right? If, if this is all there is, then you want to have all the power you can have. So people have to do what you want, and you don't have to do what they want. Uh, point number five. Nietzsche is mad. I'm, I may be repeating myself here. I'm sure I'll get more comments this week. But Nietzsche is mad in part because he thinks few were bright enough to see this and fewer still are bright enough, or excuse me, fewer still are strong enough to face it. So uh, all that matters is power. Fewer bright enough to see this uh, because there's sort of a halo effect of Christianity that holds on. And he said it would hold on for a couple hundred years. So you might argue that it's starting to go away right now, uh, but fewer strong enough or bright enough to see this, fewer are strong enough uh, to face it. Uh, point number seven, uh, truth is a power grab. There is no truth, right? Again, so <laughs> there is no such thing as truth. What there is are people with power saying things are true. So the people with power are forcing their perspective, their worldview. So obviously this is a prevailing, growing theme today uh, that we hear in various circles. So Nietzsche would argue that truth is pure metaphor. It's, pers it's perspective on life imposed by the dominant force. So because it's perspective, we should not approach truth, truth claims trying to verify them and see if they're true, Instead, when we hear a truth claim, we should ask, why did this view emerge and who does it help? So truth is not I'm, not, I'm not finding truth because it's actually lines up with objective reality, lines up with, with a world that is ordered by a God who has order and consistency. No, there is no such thing as truth. There's just people with power forcing their way. Now, um, I would just pause here to point out uh, this could be understood to be Nietzsche trying to claim power to force his way, right? I mean, anytime anybody says that there are no absolutes, right, they are violating their very statement. They're making an absolute statement saying there are no absolutes. Philosophers call this a self-stultifying proposition. It's like saying, I always lie. That statement cannot be true. If I always lie, I'm lying about the fact that I always lie. So I'm telling the truth, right? It's, it, this is nonsense. So Nietzsche was not always as clear thinking as he might have uh, imagined himself to be. Okay, well, I think, dear listener, that that is enough for you to get a passing grade on your uh, freshman in college philosophy class. Uh, but I'll give you one more for extra credit in the event that you did poorly on the midterm. Uh, so here's an eighth insight. According to Nietzsche, history is just a battlefield in which power was playing out. 
We cannot study history for insights or lessons. It has no meaning whatsoever. It's just chaos. Uh, so Nietzsche was not even comfortable talking about like the rise and fall of certain powers because he was just wanting to be so completely obtuse to whether or not that was a good or a bad thing, the rise of one empire versus the, the fall of another. Clearly, if Nietzsche's right, there is no right side of history to be on, right? Because uh, there is no morality at all. You cannot say that history bends towards justice. You cannot say it's a good thing the North won the Civil War. You cannot say slavery is wrong. You can't say any of these things. And uh, Nietzsche would argue that uh, if we grow up and study history, we would, um, we would understand that. Now, that's where I'm going to stop for today. I, I, you picked up that Nietzsche is, um, you know, was not a happy camper. He was not celebrated during his life. He had very specific uh, ideas about uh, what the, the, the absence of God meant. You know that he wrote a lot of books uh, and uh, that he had poor health and eventually goes insane. Um, I think that um, I think he's a helpful guy to understand because I think he was on to something. Back in the 1880s, he was writing about what the 20th century was going to look like and indeed what the 21st century would be like if we move into a world where there is no God and the Christian foundations that have shaped a culture that have for a long time said there is no God, but I'm still going to live as if there is one, moves past that. So uh, Nietzsche will come up a lot in future lectures because a lot of people are going to say, well, Nietzsche was behind Nazism or Nietzsche is behind uh, existentialism, Nietzsche is behind anti-Semitism, Nietzsche is behind all these other things. So you'll hear his name uh, as we're moving forward. But next up, uh, next time we're back, episode number 73, we will be looking at Sigmund Freud. See you then.